4: This is Bear Shell DeNeely and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show.
1: flowers yellow faces sway in a sultry breeze waves of sunblast swaying to
3: Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner program, and uh, my guest this hour is, uh, let's see, how can we put this, Um, a Baltimore lawyer uh, with the firm of Liebman and Shively. He is uh, a graduate of uh, Dartmouth and uh, the University of Chicago Law, and uh, he's written extensively on uh, political things. Um, His newest book, which we're going to talk about this morning, uh, I believe it's his newest book, although he is somewhat prolific. He may have (laughs) some more since this one came out. But Vox Clementis in Deserto is the name of the book, which uh, uh, translates to mean A Voice Crying in the Wilderness. It is the uh, Dartmouth motto, I believe. And uh, joining me by phone is its author, uh, George Liebman. George, welcome to the show. Good morning.
2: Oh, well, it's good to talk to you.
3: Um, now, as I understand it, this this book is um, a collection of uh, about approximately 30 years' worth of uh, essays and opinion columns chronicling the Failings of the past four presidential administrations. Um, how, how did this idea come to you, George, to, to put this collection together and to add a couple of your own?
2: Well, it, it seemed to me that it was uh, the pieces clung together in a way because they all dealt with the inadequacies of presidential leadership. And rather than leave them scattered, it seemed to me that the whole was somewhat greater than the sum of its parts, uh, I think we have a, a real problem in this country in terms of the way we select the head of state. Uh, and the problem, I think, really began with the ascendancy of the direct primary, uh, in, really in 1960, uh, when uh, John Kennedy defeated uh, Lyndon Johnson and Hubert Humphrey, uh, both of whom were... Uh, considerably more experienced, uh, than he was and were in many respects deeper people than he was. And since then, we've had a series of uh, candidates like Kennedy who would never have emerged as nominees in the day of the true political convention, or if you want to be pejorative about it, the smoke filled room, uh, no, uh, political convention or smoke-filled room would have nominated uh... barry goldwater um, uh... bill clinton uh, barack obama uh, donald trump george bush the younger um, all of these people were either unknown to the national political class if you will or uh were all too well-known in the sense that their personal defects and limitations were well-known. And yet they became president thanks to the direct primary. Uh, When the direct primary began to be instituted, uh, uh, William Howard Taft, who was then the president and was a violent opponent of it, predicted that, that the result would be that people of little experience would be nominated that money would play a much greater role than it otherwise would, and uh, that the consequences would not be good because conventions of office holders usually choose the more moderate candidate. Uh, this is not so of primaries. And uh, the results uh, have really gotten serious. I mean, we've had a whole series of presidential candidates and even vice-presidential candidates who, um, put bluntly, Shouldn't have been there and would never have risen to the top in a parliamentary system when you look at the people who have been chancellors of Germany, for instance, or prime ministers of Great Britain.
3: Do you think that uh, Joe Biden fits that mold or is, is he a return to the kind of choices that might have been made in a smoke-filled room?
2: I think he, I, you know, I think he is a return to the smoke-filled room uh, uh, to a considerable degree, and I think that came about uh, simply because of the sheer number of candidates. I think uh, it almost became a reductio ad absurdum of the primary process. Uh, uh, and it was sort of a piece of exhaustion that he was uh, nominated. <laughs> <But> <laughs>
3: That's an interesting way of putting it, George. But yet yeah, we didn't see the same phenomenon in, uh, uh, 2016 with Donald Trump and his, uh, 16 fellow primary candidates in the Republican so Party. I
2: think, uh, I think the media nominated Donald Trump. I think, uh, um. And I I don't know whether this is a fashionable view, but I think uh, many people in the media wanted the weakest possible Republican candidate and saw him as almost a figure of fun who would fit that mold. And I think he was, uh, in many ways, the weakest possible Republican candidate. I think if, uh, for example, John Kasich had been the nominee, the the election wouldn't have been close. Uh, But um, we got Trump. Uh, and uh, uh, he, he would have been the last person uh, who, would, who would have been chosen by the uh, Republicans in Congress or the Republican governors. I think the only Republican politician of any prominence who endorsed him was John Sessions, was Senator Sessions, and we know what happened to him. Uh, it's uh, quite quite a remarkable phenomenon, and I think it's still true. The media is fascinated by Trump understandably so. I mean he's very entertaining. But uh nobody else can grow in that shadow when so much of uh, the publicity about politics centers on this one person.
3: He takes up a lot of the spotlight.
2: Yeah, I mean there are certainly other people in the in the Republican party. Uh, Senator Sass for example of, of I guess it's Nebraska. Uh Kasich, even though he's out of office, um, some of the uh, Republican governors, DeWine in Ohio, uh, Hogan in Maryland, Baker in Massachusetts, uh, who, are, who have done a good job, but who just uh, are unknown and uh, get you know 1% of the attention that Trump gets. And uh, the congressional leaders, uh, of course, are better known. But even so, it, uh, it, it does limit the public's choices to a considerable degree when you have this fascination with uh, one person.
3: More with author George Liebman, straight ahead.
2: Hello, darling. This is O'Vira, Mistress of the Dark, with
1: Tom Sumner.
5: Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
3: Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with author George Liebman, straight ahead. George, why these, um, why these four presidents, Clinton, Bush, Obama, and uh, Trump? Is it um, just because of recent memory, availability of material, um, well, showing a trend? Are,
2: yeah. I started writing, uh, you know, some op-ed pieces about 20, 25 years ago, and uh, I thought the four together uh, illustrated the same phenomenon. They had the advantage of being two from each party, uh, and they all four in different ways were really uh, not qualified for the offices They held and together have done a great deal of harm to American politics. Let me, let me go through them one by one.
3: Yeah, please. Uh,
2: Clinton, uh, Clinton uh, was very young. Uh, he uh, was governor of a small state. His record in that state was not one of great achievement. Uh, uh, everybody knew about his philandering, uh, uh, and he was, uh, you know, he was nominated. He, he had some unexciting opponents in the Democratic primary, but the press got fixated on him because he had some paper qualifications. He was a former Rhodes Scholar, uh, but there was fundamentally no there there. He got through the primaries uh, on the basis of generalities, and when he got to be president, Uh, There was no agenda. I mean, he started out with with gays in the military, which is not one of the greatest national problems, given the state of our high schools, for example. Um, And he kind of went on from there. And at the end of eight years, uh, there was really no record. Um, He uh, accommodated uh, deregulation to an excessive degree. He left behind a, a stock market bubble. He laid the foundation of the later banking crisis. Uh, the, uh, there were ta- corporate tax changes that uh, bore rather bitter fruit in shareholder buyouts and that sort of thing. Uh, and and of course um, he got involved in the Yugoslav Wars which generated uh, millions of refugees and helped destabilize Western Europe. So uh, his was not exactly a glittering record. in the last Term was devoted largely to sitting in a bunker, defending himself uh, against an impeachment effort. Then you had George W. Bush, who came from a weak governor state where the lieutenant governor is almost as powerful as the governor. Uh, no one thought he was a great leader of thought. Uh, he didn't start thinking seriously about politics or anything else until he was in his 40s. Until then, he had a rather serious drinking problem. And again, he is not a candidate who would have emerged in any parliamentary system uh, as a leader of a party. Then you had Mr. Obama, who was, if possible, even less experienced. Uh, He had been an Illinois state legislator where he he was noted for dodging tough issues. He was senator for a very brief period, and uh, uh, again, when he assumed office, it was the same syndrome that affected George W. Bush and Clinton and Jack Kennedy, the what-the-hell-do-I-do-now syndrome. <laughs> he, he was not a person who arrived with an agenda. I mean, whatever one may think of Lyndon Johnson, for instance, he knew what he wanted to do. The same thing, I think, was true of Reagan. It was true of Nixon. Uh, uh, it was certainly true of Roosevelt and Hoover, but uh, when you get someone who's very light on experience and is not particularly intellectual and gets nominated because of celebrity, uh, uh, you get this bewilderment. And uh, what uh, what uh, Obama you know, Obama chose uh, health care as his project? Why I don't know. I mean, to my mind as I said, the state of education in this country, particularly high school education, is a much more serious problem. But, uh, you know, he chose health care as his project. He came up with this great sprawling bill that cost an enormous amount of money and did nothing for public health properly so-called, as we saw at the time of the COVID epidemic, when uh, it turned out that very little money had been invested in the the Center for Disease Control and public health properly Uh, so-called I I heard uh, I think it was the head of the World Bank at the time uh, uh, Kim uh, at one point made a speech saying that uh, if you assembled all the public health experts in the country or at least the leading ones and asked them how the money that had been spent on Obamacare could have been spent for public health none of them would want anything like Obamacare Obamacare was a piece of consumer legislation. It, was, it helped some people's pocketbooks. But in terms of suppressing disease, in terms of dealing with uh, venereal disease, epidemics, uh, lead, point, lead paint poisoning, uh, uh, diabetes, and obesity, um, it had no effect at all. It had nothing to do with those things. And uh, it was essentially, in those terms, a waste of money. It relieved people's financial anxieties, but it didn't uh, much ease their pain or help them live longer. So his was, I think, a failed administration, and he also managed to exacerbate exacerbate racial problems because his formula was one that relied so heavily on the black vote. He had awakened to the fact that... uh, Uh, blacks are a 13% minority, but since they almost all vote Democratic, uh, this meant that they were at least a 25 or 30% minority in Democratic primaries, which meant that uh, a a candidate who could mobilize that vote was halfway to the Democratic nomination, and that was his formula. So his formula was one that was really heavily dependent on mobilizing blacks, and the Mm -hmm only problem was that in the process of mobilizing blacks, uh, he exacerbated uh, racial tensions, uh, and uh, his legacy was not a very positive one. And then uh, Mr. Trump, I mean, uh, Mr. Trump was a protest candidate, uh, fundamentally. Um, His protest was about immigration, trade, the loss of manufacturing jobs, careless wars, and an excessively rambunctious Supreme Court, and his issues were good issues, but again, uh, because of his strange personality and inexperience, uh, he was needlessly ham-handed and divisive in advancing his causes. Uh, this, I think, was particularly true of immigration uh, uh, and uh, uh, Fundamentally, in the end, his personality did himself himself in. I don't think he lost the election on issues. He lost it because he was the erratic person he was. So uh, I don't think uh, the record of the last uh, uh, 28 years in terms of our leadership in this country has been a terribly good one. And again, I think the selection process has a great deal to do with it because it the primary system gives an enormous amount of power to the mass media, as distinct from the local political organizations. And it gives an enormous amount of people who, power to people who don't really know the candidates. And uh, the result is we have this very, these very inadequate leaders.
3: Could George W. Bush have gotten the nomination had his father not fairly recently been president?
2: No, I think clearly the answer to that is no. Uh, uh, you know, I think uh, the name counted for something. And uh, uh, now Jeb Bush might have, but of course Jeb Bush had lost his race in Florida, and so they fell back on George W., which was a great misfortune.
3: Do you think Jeb Jeb had uh, had more skills than than? Uh... Yeah, I think he
2: had more substance. He had a very good record, I think, on education, for example. Uh, again, he was not a dramatic or compelling personality, but I think he would have been a reasonably effective president in terms of uh, congressional relations. He certainly would have had an education program that would have been far better than the one that George W. Bush came forth with that now has totally disappeared. Uh, I think his congressional relations would have been much better. Uh, He was simply more skilled and and again, uh, better educated. He didn't didn't waste 15 or 20 years uh, uh, as a non-serious person.
3: Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, when I was first looking over uh, material for uh, our conversation about your book, and I want to mention the name again, Fox clementus in Deserto, and uh, we're going to, um, and, and I want to talk about that title with you too, George. But, um, It it reminds me, I did an interview with a a local activist who had been complaining about the mayor and asked him, and, and I think he was even maybe pushing a recall, and I asked him if he thought the previous mayor did a better job, and he said no. And and as I asked him, he went back, I, we went back through about a half a dozen previous mayors, and he would have impeached or uh, recalled all of them.
2: <laughs> and, and well, I, I'm not, I'm not of that school. Uh, I mean, I think that uh, up until really, uh, uh, up until Clinton, we had at least passable leaders in the post-war period. And. And some leaders of some distinction, I think, uh, you know, Roosevelt, Truman, and Eisenhower, and in his uh, frequently misguided way, Johnson and Nixon, were people of real substance. Uh, You know, I don't think that can be said of people we've had since. I mean, once, uh, you know, I think Reagan... uh, was a person of substance in that he had been governor of California and he knew what he believed and he had a serious agenda, whether people agreed with it or not. But I think the people we've had since then have been fundamentally non-serious in addition to being uh, having limited experience.
3: And now we think, is the election of, of Joe Biden... Um, situational, or is it the pendulum uh, swinging back that that we're changing our expectations?
2: Well, I think he, he has some assets, obviously. Uh, he's been, uh, over time, a very mercurial politician. He has a tendency to go with the flow. And I think to the extent that he's getting himself into trouble it's it's on the social issues uh he has sort of gone gone whole hog on the culture war which i think is a great mistake because because of the economy and covid he had a chance to reconstruct the roosevelt coalition and bring back into the fold a great many uh, southerners and roman catholics in the north and because of his doubling down on the culture war, which is re- which really involves what should be state and local issues, he's losing that opportunity. So we're going to continue to have this sort of 50-50 division in the country, which I think is uh, misfortune. Uh, I do think that uh, uh, the pendulum on economic issues has definitely swung back in the direction of uh, greater equality and disenchantment with uh, uh, too much uh, laissez faire and um, i think that's a healthy thing and for that reason i think his administration may be a healthy development i think he's restrained in foreign policy and i think that's a healthy development Um, as was trump in his in his way but um, in terms of healing the divisions in the country i think he's missing an opportunity
3: now the title of the book, "George Vox Clementis in Deserto," um, as I understand it, it translates to mean "a voice crying in the wilderness." I've seen uh, some definitions that say "a voice crying in the desert," um, but how did you come to select that? I mean, it,
2: it, it is well. The, it, is, it is as you pointed out, the, the motto of uh, Dartmouth College, where I where I went, but. Uh, Basically, it's, it was out of frustration. Uh, when you're in a provincial city, and Baltimore, although it's a large city, is a provincial city, it's very hard to make your voice, he- your voice heard on a national basis. And when you do, it's sort of fortuitous. I've, I've been involved, particularly when I was much younger, in a number of major national controversies. But uh, in recent years, I've found that you. If you can't publish in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, or the Washington Post, it's very difficult to uh, to get a hearing uh, for one's ideas, and I'm sure you've discovered that uh, from many of your guests. And no matter what you say, you're sort of in a desert. So I think frustration accounts for the title to some extent.
3: Um, is, is that uh, a a trend going forward? Is it, is it saying something editorially about the voice of reason?
2: Yes. I mean, um, I, I think the the media have really never been more... Even though people say the Internet gives everybody a voice, it really doesn't. Uh, the, it gives everybody a
3: microphone. It doesn't really yeah, help them, them with what voice. to no. say. <laughs>
2: that's right. That's right. And when you've got uh, Amazon with... 70 or 80 percent of the book market. You have uh, uh, five publishers, and if a pending merger goes through four publishers that control an enormous percentage of the book publishing industry. You have uh, the New York Times and two other papers that really uh, set the tone for journalism. You have Facebook with, a, with 80 or 90 percent penetration, and Google the same way. You have these uh, essentially monopoly media. Um, there's an enormous amount of power there. And and it gets worse and worse because they they become less and less humble. I mean, the New York Times thinks it can redefine history uh, with the 1619 Project, redefine language by requiring everybody to capitalize the word black. Um, uh, And you have... uh, uh, You have... uh, Amazon refusing to carry certain books on controversial subjects, and you have Facebook uh, not only uh, censoring the more outrageous statements of President Trump, but refusing to let him tweet at all, which uh, you know, has received criticism from Angela Merkel and Bernie Sanders, among others, and quite properly so. Uh, you really don't have... Uh, freedom of discussion to the extent we once did in this country.
3: To to what degree, George, do you think that the public is a uh, co-conspirator uh, in that, in that uh, the things that seem controversial for controversy's sake... Um, Seem to, to attract more attention than things of substance.
2: Well, yeah, I think uh, I think that's true to a considerable degree. Uh, uh, yeah, I think the, the campaign finance system, and particularly the prevalence of television and uh, you know fifteen second political commercials, hasn't been helpful. Uh, I think. Uh, Other countries have done a much better job with that. I think the British uh, don't let people buy commercials unless they're five minutes long. Uh, If you can't afford a five-minute commercial, you can buy one smaller one. But uh, it makes for a much more intelligent political campaign than what we have in this country, which um, I think the historian John Lukacs said that... uh, you once had campaigns based on issues, and now you had. Then you had campaigns based on personalities, and then lately you just have campaigns that are based on publicity—the sheer volume of publicity—and uh, that's certainly not a sign of great progress.
3: When you have, uh, when you have a, a great number of people, and this is something that's been troubling me for a while, is the idea that there's a lack of trust—trust uh, trust by the public in. Uh, elected officials and agency and and business leaders, um, lack of trust even in science and and statistics and and other uh, uh, data, the the evolution of so-called fake news and alternative facts. How do you not be a voice crying in the wilderness?
2: Well, the... You know, the lack of trust and the cynicism, uh, I, I think it partly comes from perceived lack of legitimacy of the leadership in the sense that uh, you're not being led by people who have uh, come up because of the approval of people who know them. Uh, the original American system and James Madison's system was a system based on filtering, as it was called, in which uh, people at low levels in politics were examined by those above them and promoted accordingly. And that's really the way a parliamentary system works. The Prime Minister of Great Britain and the Chancellor of Germany are not elected by the public. Uh, They're elected by parliamentarians who know about them, who know, know what their foibles are, and when people are picked in that way, it's harder to take cheap, cheap shots at them. Uh, whereas when, when you get every Tom, Dick, and Harry who may land in high office, uh, you get a lot of people who attract and, in many instances, deserve uh, cheap shots. That's, that's, I think, part of the problem, the way we select leadership. And that's something that something can be done about. That doesn't require a constant that's within the power of both political parties simply by changing their rules to make the selection of presidential candidates, the selection of the local, state, and congressional office holders, which is the way it once was. And that produced different results. For, for instance, in 1952, uh, Estes Kefauver won most of the Democratic primaries, and yet Hadley Stevenson was the nominee. And it was widely known among the uh, uh, political class that Kefauver, among other things, drank too much, and that had more than a little to do with the fi- with the outcome. Uh, that kind of filtering doesn't happen anymore.
3: More with author George Liebman straight ahead. <laughs>
4: And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now.
3: It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 15th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like the. Seth David Radwell.
0: East Village Magazine
3: Flint Institute of Music. Hello!
0: I'm Meister
2: Ricky Magazine. Flint Community School.
3: MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. WH Carver, The Genesee County Road Commission. Lone Museum Auto Fair.
2: Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan. Whippla Technology.
3: My Community College. It's pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner Program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters past, present, and future. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon...
0: Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program.
3: More with author George Liebman. Straight ahead. Do you think that these uh, these four presidents uh, that, that are highlighted by the book—Clinton, um, Bush, Obama, and Trump—have uh, contributed to the lack of trust, or perhaps done little to uh, change it or earn trust?
2: Yeah, I think that's clearly true. I think you know, I had some, I have some British cousins, and at the time of the Clinton impeachment, uh, they said, "Well, this, this sex scandal seems very silly to us, but of course, if he lied to a grand jury, he will have to resign." Well, of course, he didn't, and that really debased politics. I think uh, that particular uh, decision and. In in Obama's case, there was the resort to executive orders and and, uh, to the judiciary as a means of bringing about change in preference to uh, uh, persuading Congress. Uh, uh, Congress was more or less treated during the Obama administration as though it didn't exist, and the same same was even more true of the state legislatures. Uh, The Democrats lost most of the state legislatures, and uh, and they lost them because uh, state politics uh, to the political class were a matter almost of indifference. And so you wind up with a situation where there's all this focus on who happens to be the president and less and less focus on the, uh, the issues which once defined the purposes of a political party.
3: George, how did you select the, uh, the essays to include in this collection?
2: Well, I uh, I thought the ones that had the greatest, you know, contemporary, the, the, the related issues that are still live issues are the ones that I picked. Um, I didn't have an infinite number to choose from, but I had probably a hundred more than I could have used. But uh, uh, that's really how uh, how they were chosen. And then the collection also includes about 20 uh, lengthy book reviews and three, uh, three essays on other subjects. One is about the Kennedy administration, one is about the original design of the UN, and the third is about the legacy of Nazi Germany. Um, but uh, it's, it's really an effort to take a longer view of the last 30 years, and I, I think readers will be interested in it as I indicated it's published by Amazon and it's you can get it you can get it for $22 online in paperback or for $10 uh, in a Kindle and uh, I think people will certainly find some parts of it interesting if they don't find it all interesting uh, and it is it is a kind of a series of snapshots of different things that all involve the same problem
3: well, I, I, f- I find the whole idea, uh, fascinating and, and George, um, we're just pretty much out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we're talking about. Obviously the book Vox Clementis in Deserto by George Liebman is, uh, a great place to start, but, um, George, do you have a website where people can get to know a little bit more about you and your work, well, past, I, present, and future?
2: I have a, a website uh, for a think tank that I've run called the Calvert Institute, www.calvertinstitute.org, which has basically all my op-eds for the last 20 years or so. But also, if you go on Amazon, you will find a listing of my books. and I've written about 10 or 12 Books on law and history. Uh, one called "Diplomacy Between the Wars," and one is a biography of John Negroponte, who was a classmate of mine 50 years ago. And then there are there's a book called "The Common Law Tradition" that's about five University of Chicago law professors of the 50s and their reaction to the Brown versus Board of Education decision. And uh, people who are interested will find the books. Interesting
3: um, well George,
2: I have I, I really favored biography essay uh, as, as a way of writing about politics because it leads you to places that you wouldn't go if you were just selecting historical facts on the basis of your prior knowledge.
3: Well, George, thanks so much for sharing a little time with me this morning, and uh, best of luck with the book and and all of your work.
2: Well thank you and I, I think your questions have been very thoughtful and uh, and interesting and I know that uh, you you're in a community that has suffered from dubious political leadership at times, so I suspect some of the things I've said will resonate
3: yeah i think I think you're right about that george we uh, um, the, the area has uh, some some definite trust issues
2: well, I wish you luck and i'm I'm sure you were Great influence for good, and I, I do thank you for this opportunity.
3: All right, take care. Right. Author George Liebman's uh, book "Vox Clementis in Deserto," or a voice crying in the wilderness. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. Soon. <music>
2: hail to the chief he's the chief and he needs hailing he is the chief so everybody hail like crazy hail to that's
4: (sighs) hail to the chief if you don't i'll have to kill you i am the chief so you better watch your step
0: welcome to this presentation of the comedy spotlight on the tom sumner program
4: Harvey and Sheila, Harvey and Sheila, Harvey and Sheila, oh the day they met Harvey and Sheila, Harvey and Sheila, Harvey and Sheila, Sheila, no one will forget Harvey's a CPA, he works for IBM. He went to MIT and got his PhD. <laughs> Sheila's a girl I know at BBD&O. Oh, she works the PBX and makes out the checks. Then came one great day when Harvey took the elevator, Sheila got in two floors later. Soon they both felt they were falling. Everyone heard Sheila calling. Ring the bell, but they fell. Harvey and Sheila fell in love. Harvey and Sheila Harvey, and Sheila Harvey, and Sheila chose a wedding ring. Harvey, and Sheila Harvey, and Sheila Harvey, and Sheila married in the spring. She shopped at A&P. He bought a used MG. They sat and watched TV on their RCA. Borrowed from HFC Bought some AT&T And on election day Worked for JFK Then they went And got a charge of plate From R.H. Macy Bought a lay at Pink and Lacy Then they had twin baby girls Both with dimples, both with curls One named B, one named K Soon they joined the PTA Harvey and Sheila, Harvey and Sheila, Harvey and Sheila Sheila moved to West L.A. Harvey 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 and Sheila, Harvey and Sheila, Harvey and Sheila flew T.W.A. They bought a house one day, financed by FHA. It had a swimming pool full of H2O. Traded their used MG for a new XKE. Switched to the GOP. That's the way things go. Oh, that Harvey, he was really smart. He used his noodle. Sheila bought a white French poodle. Went to Europe with a visa. Harvey's rich. They say that he's a VIP. This could be only in the U.S.A.
1: This was
0: another Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Hey,
3: that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. I want to say thanks to all of my guests. We had to um, switch a couple out today because we had a problem with the phone system. Our phone system picked Friday the 13th to crash, but we'll have it up and running next week, I'm sure. In the meantime, have a great weekend. Enjoy this this warm weather we're having. And um, we'll see you next week with more editions. Of the Tom Sumner Program. Good night, everybody.
0: The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions.